Welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast, a show dedicated to helping seven figure plus star owners build incredible businesses and amazing lives. I'm Andrew Darian, and today I'm joined by Webb Smith, who is the co-founder of Mizzen Plus Main, as well as 2PM, a newsletter in the e-commerce space. And we we kind of went all over the place. It was fun. Title of the episode, of course, we talk about burnout a lot. He gets very candid, really appreciate this, about how, how rough it was early on building his company, walked away, thought he was never going to build another e-commerce company. Gets candid about that. We talk about endorsements, getting endorsements from high-profile celebrities for your, your company. We talk about, is there actually a, a bubble in the direct-to-consumer space? We talk about building e-commerce brands with community. We, we cover a lot of different things, the early days of Mizzen Maine. Fun discussion. I really enjoyed having him on, and I think you will too. Before we jump in, though, a big thank you to our sponsors who make the show possible, Clayview, the ultimate e-commerce marketing platform. Whether you're launching your e-commerce business or taking your brand and leveling it up, you'll get the tools you need to grow faster. From a company that's trusted by over 32,000 e-commerce brands like Brooklyn and None and Chubby's, you can build your contact lists and emails that pop and create marketing moments that build incredibly valuable relationships with your customers over any distance. You can test drive them for free, no risk at clavio.com forward slash ECF to create your first account. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com forward slash ECF. And then secondly, a big thank you to e-commerce fuel capital. This is the investment group that that I've put together recruiting a, a world-class team of people like Ezra Firestone, Drew Sanaki, Miss Cody Sanchez, Mr. Bill D'Alessandro, Steve Chu, a whole group of people with expertise from everything from, from Shopify to, to Facebook ads to everything in between. So if you're looking just for money and no expertise, there's lots of other funds out there that can help you out. But if you want some capital with some some really, you know, some battle-tested guidance and mentorship, you should chat with us. You can learn more and start the discussion at ecommercefuel.com forward slash capital. All right, let's go ahead and get into our discussion today. Web, usually I try not to dive too much in the minutiae of backstories of a lot of our guests, but I'm gonna make an exception with you because, man, with Mizzen and Maine, uh, I was a customer, am a customer, loved your shirts. Half of the reason I got out of finance was because I hated ironing. And so when I got one of your shirts, it was amazing. For people who don't know Mizzen and Maine, you, you guys made these incredible, very comfortable iron-free shirts, dress shirts, really well made. Anyway, what? tell me the backstory there. What? Because you were one of the co-founders or founder of the business. How, how did that, what's the backstory of Mizzen and Maine? How did you start that? It's a great question. So you have to rewind back to 2011, late uh, 2011, early 2012. And Kevin and I had a mutual friend in a guy named Jake Thompson. And I didn't know Kevin at all. Jake sort of said, if I remember correctly, hey, Kevin, you have a great product. I know the guy that can sell it. And you know, Kevin had been toying around with the idea he had essentially a beta version of the shirt at that time. You know, his quick backstory, he was a legislative aide in DC and he was tired of sweating through his shirts. And that was sort of like the pain point uh, was the catalyst behind the idea. And so we got on the phone that day and I'm like, Kevin, you know, I like the idea. I'm interested in seeing the shirt. I love the name. I, I love the naming concept. You know, just because I've, you know, I've I've been I've lived in New England, I've I've lived that lifestyle. Like I got what he was trying to project, 
he showed up at my house the next day. So he took a flight from Dallas to Columbus, Ohio, stayed at my house. It's the first time that we had ever met. And, you know, we, we signed the agreement that day. And there on out, we were building from zero to one. That's cool. So for someone who has never lived in New England and the, the naming is completely lost on me, what, what, what were you guys trying to convey with that brand name, Business Domain? Yeah. So there are three masts of sails on a warship. Warship, you know, being the type of vessel that was around before powered steamboats and or nuclear powered destroyers and, and what you would imagine in the Navy today. Those olden ships had three masts to power them. And the first two of, the, of those masts are the mizzen and the main, and the last is the fore. Uh, so I've, I've sailed a ton in my life, and so I instantly sort of got it. Whereas maybe if Jake would have introduced him to someone who hadn't had that experience, it would have been like, what the hell are you doing? Like, what is this? You know, my dad was, my dad was in the service, and so like, it, it was one of those things where, yeah, it, it made sense. So were you... Were you focused mostly on the marketing side of things or like had a, they took care of, or he took care of product and you were in marketing? What was your role in the company? You know, it was two of us. And so <laughs> we were jacks of all trades. I mean, we were still going to trade shows together. We were knee deep in product development. I had to come up with a customer acquisition strategy without money. We didn't raise <laughs> money for the first few years. So... You know, what really burns is that, you know, that was sort of the era of customer acquisition arbitrage, right? Like if you had money at that, at that point in time, Facebook was your best friend, right? I mean, it's, it's what Ampush did with Dollar Shave Club and so on and so forth. We didn't have that. So it became a matter of how do we get people to want to buy these shirts how do we get them to you know, want to believe in the brand? And then the hardest problem was it's a category that didn't exist. You know, it was us and it was Ministry of Supply. We were sort of the leaders in that space. And it didn't translate well to online sales initially because men were not used to knit fabrics for dress shirts. And it was difficult to, it was difficult to communicate the properties of the shirts themselves. I think the first time I, the only reason I bought them is because I heard really good things about them. It's when you look at a picture, when, when you feel it, it, it's, it's, it's fitting, it's comfortable. It's, it's a great product, but it's, you can't really tell that from an image. It's, you really have to touch the product to be able to get the sense of that. Correct. And so, yeah, I, I had a very hard time, very hard time, but we did it. And our, I guess our biggest breakthrough was my wife was a CrossFit Games athlete at the time, I'm you know raising a little baby, and we, we're not paying ourselves. So, you know, I had a full time job, and that wasn't really paying us well because it was the type of full time job that you could do other things with, right? Like I needed a job that I worked eight hours to put something on the books so that I could focus on my other eight hour job, which was missing, right? And given that that wasn't paying the bills. I was also managing this athlete who happened to be a top CrossFit Games athlete. And good thing for us, I, I negotiated about $17 million worth of deals for him. So my percentage on that was pretty decent and it got us through a pretty tough time. Well, the intro to the CrossFit space really helped Mizzen's first leg, right? I mean, a bunch of fit guys wearing our shirts wasn't a bad thing. 
And it began sort of the spiral that we progressed upon as we approached, you know, traditional sports. Sorry to interrupt and, and just to clarify, when you say you negotiated deals, were you were you negotiating sponsorship deals with some of these CrossFit athletes to wear this stuff? Or do, are you saying in a completely separate realm, you were managing an athlete, you negotiated some deals with them, gave you more money to work with? Exactly. So I did. So there's a specific athlete. He was the highest profile athlete in like the history of the sport. I don't know why he asked me to do it, but he did. And I think, I think my response when he initially asked me was, Hey, you know, man, I'm not an agent. He's like, well, you'll figure it out. And I was like, all right. Uh, and so, and so in that time, I mean, I, I negotiated a $10 million Reebok deal, uh, a $5 million Nike deal that he turned down for the Reebok deal, you know, Rogue, Oakley, Avocare, you name it. It worked out. So that is a man, probably the first person I've ever chatted with on the podcast that funded their e-commerce business through sports negotiations as, uh, as an, <laughs> playing an agent on the side, which is pretty cool. What total random question here. Did you have any lessons that I'm always fascinated by negotiation? Um, when you were prepping for that stuff or in, in the middle of those negotiations, was there anything that, that was a tactic or uh, a strategy that worked really effectively well for you or, or just in general, what do you learn about negotiation doing that? It's a great question. I wish that most people paid attention to that sort of aspect of my progression because it was really, really important, not only for the company's growth. I mean, keep in mind, without that era, you know, the the Tebow's, the Phil Mickelson's, that doesn't happen. Like we ingrained that into the company's DNA in ways, you know? And so for me, it was David Falk, Michael Jordan's agent, taught me a ton. I mean, reading everything that he did taught me a ton about categories, right? And so the mistake that most people make, especially when they are non-conventional athletes is they do head-to-toe deals, right? So they, they will pick a sponsor, let's call it Reebok, and they'll say, okay, Reebok will pay me $200,000 and everything on my body is going to be Reebok. And yay, I got $200,000. And we said, no, that's not, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to partition your body off and we're going to sell parts of your body. And, and so, you know, there, there was the shoe deal. There was the shorts deal. He had a sunglasses deal. You know, obviously he had the supplement deal, things like that. And, you know, who, who was going to be on his shirt? We had to negotiate that deal. And what that, what that ended up doing was it increased the yield. It increased how much we were able to bring in. Right. I learned that from David Falk, but more specifically, I learned that from a lot of the action sports folks in the Red Bull era. That's how they did business. And, you know, I was like, hey, this is this is smart for us. This is what's going to make both of us the most money. So did that also give you an opportunity later on when you started approaching because you said Phil Mickelson, he was he was a, a Mizzen and main sponsor. Is that correct? Today, Mickelson is one of the faces of Mizzen, and he is an equity owner in the company, along with Tim Tebow and a few others. Yeah, yeah. Did that help when you were negotiating some of those deals and other ones where maybe it looked like somebody was was locked up with a you know some certain company, but you could go back and say, "Hey, do you have an exclusive shirt company or a shirt sponsorship?" Did it did it let you? Did that give you opportunities you otherwise wouldn't have had, taking more of a a, a granular approach as opposed to just all or nothing? I'll tell you how it did help because I I can't take the credit for that. Kevin pulled an ace out of a hat when he got the Mickelson deal done. Uh, He sent him shirts before the Masters 
thinking, hey, man, we're going to put your logo on shirts. You're not going to wear them. Like, there's no chance Phil Mickelson's actually going to wear the shirts, right? Because he's Phil Mickelson. And he wore the shirts during the practice round. And I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if you're a golf fan, but like Tiger made fun of him for the entire practice round for wearing a dress shirt during the, during the match. And it blew up. It blew up. Like it was all over ESPN. And like Tiger making fun of Phil for wearing Mizzen in Maine. And then obviously within a month or two, Kevin backdoor did a deal with him. And so, but I, so going back a little bit, here's how that short education helped us build a foundation for Mizzen. It was a conversation that I had when I did another deal between Rogue and the Tough Mudder at the time. My buddy Dan Weinberg left Tough Mudder, went to NBC Universal. I visited him in the office with Kevin one day. He says, Hey, Webb, I have a buddy at Creative Arts Agency. He's very high up. He wants to meet. I think it'd be a good contact for you. And I explained to this gentleman, his name was Paul Danforth. He's now the president of CAA. He heard how I built the whole model for, for, for Rich Froning, the CrossFit Games athlete. And we began talking about how he devised models for other athletes. He ended up, he ended up essentially investing on the spot and then opening up a portfolio of creative arts you know, clients for us to potentially partner with. And that's what started our foray into you know, big three, big four sports. And just so he, he saw the creative creativity that you used and how you got that. And that was, it just pretty much launched, launched that whole other door for you. Cause he was impressed with how you did that. Yeah. He, he was impressed, uh, secondarily by the fact that we had such a hard time selling the shirts, but we didn't discount them. I have like a strict no discount policy. I've noticed that. I have noticed that <laughs> you've played it well. And so as it relates to Mizzen, even at our worst, I refused to do promotional promotional events for the shirts because I had this image in my mind of us being, you know, a high-end product that was worn, you know, at country clubs and blah, 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 blah. And it is today. And without without discount, if we had discounted, that wouldn't have been the case early on, right? Because you would have cheapened the product and it would have gone a complete, down a completely, you know, alternative path. Danforth really liked that. And he felt like athletes would relate to the quasi-premium approach that we were taking early on. What else did you do? I just chatted with someone else who has a, a really high-end premium uh, cowboy boot that they sell. And, and they, you know, it's, it's twice as much as all the other ones. They really do uh, get a lot of their traction from in-person. How else did you guys, given the difficulties of communicating the quality online... You mentioned the sponsorships for some of the CrossFitters. You mentioned Phil. You know that what, what happened with Phil. Were there was there anything else you were able to do that 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 was effective in being able to bridge that quality gap that you can't see on the screen in those early days? Yeah, because we went after fit guys first. The shirts draped a certain way on them. This is going to sound really corny, but it's true, and it was much easier to communicate the benefits of the shirts based on the guy that was wearing them. Interesting. What just is that they looked better on those guys? They look, they look better on the guys. These are active men who, in theory, wear active clothing when they're training or when they're, when they're exercising. So the transition from, hey, this guy wears athleisure when he works out to this is what he looks like when he wears a dress shirt was a smooth transition. And you mentioned you took funding at some point. Where, what made you decide to take funding? Because you, you've got some hard early days. You start getting some traction. Was it... 
why did you take why did you take funding? That's a good question. If I want to, rem- if I remember correctly, that first inventory run was in the hundreds of thousands of dollars because no one wanted to work with us, and that was the yield, like that was the bare minimum. So we were going to have an inventory problem eventually, and that just wasn't acceptable. And so if I had to guess at the time, what was really stressing us was inventory. But most importantly, neither of us had like real full-time jobs at that point. And, and how far into the business is this? How many years or months? Two. Two, two years? Yeah, two years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. We, I mean, we, we raised a small like friends and family round of like maybe two hundred fifty dollars to $500,000. It wasn't until you know, Elk Hatterton that we had our first real institutional capital. And by that time, you know, I was, I was burnt out mentally, physically, emotionally. I was no longer in the day to day. It took a huge toll on me. I decided I was never going to be an entrepreneur again. And I ended up working for a few people over the next three to three to four years. Ironically, I started 2PM as sort of a side project while I was working on the media side of, of the industry. What was it in terms of burnout? Man, I mean, because everyone gets burnout, but you, you had a, a really severe case of it. Was, it. was it just the hours? Was it the financial stress? Can you, can you maybe paint us a couple of pictures of things that you're willing to share of how it impacted your life? Because obviously you had some pretty intense stuff that, that made you want to walk away for that long. You know, we had, we had our second daughter in 2014. Uh, as you may know, children aren't cheap. <laughs> I got three of them. I know. Yeah. Um, that, that, that adds a bit of stress. You know, we weren't, I think in my time in those three years of like daily grind, we may have paid ourselves three months of paychecks. And so just the constant grind of making ends meet, you know, moving to a house that was big enough for us, you know, supporting my wife's career, just everything associated with customer acquisition and doing all those things without the the money to actually system systematize our marketing it was like a bad it was like a, it was just a bad scene from how to make it in america like where everything goes wrong <laughs> right yeah no i'm following you it, yeah. like, everything was such a grind for 3 years that i was like i'm never doing this again i understand now why people come out of the gates with 5 to 7 million dollars there's like an ease about that, right? Where like it's the, the stakes aren't as high. So it makes it a little bit easier to do the work. For me, it was the stakes are so high because if we made a mistake, something bad was going to happen to the family. Yeah, that's a, that's a rough place to be. What would you have done differently? I mean, looking back, I, I, think, I think sometimes that's an incredibly you know, that, that, that stress and that focus is, is you can channel it into getting things done in a way you wouldn't if you didn't have that pressure. So it can be beneficial in launching, but it's also extremely detrimental as was, you know, in terms of personal lives. Do you think looking, you know, where Mizzen is today and it's been, you know, grown to be a very successful company. Do you think you, how much of that, that crazy hustle do you think is, is, is responsible for that? And do you, what would you change differently? I guess is a better question. Looking back, is there a way things that you would have done differently to try to balance that more where you could have been able to maybe stay in the business longer, not get burned out as much? Do you think you could have done that, grown the business as well as you did without the burnout? You know, microdosing is great. 
<laughs> I love I love the honesty. <laughs> you know, I'll joke, I'll, all jokes aside, obviously I'm in a much better place now. Family's better. Financial situation's better. I feel more at peace. Kevin and I are probably better friends now than we were when we were founders. We talk every day at some point, whether it's him making fun of me for Peloton efforts or we, we've, co- we've co-invested a few times, things like that, right? I wasn't a good enough leader at that point in my career. Because I was so focused on the minutia, it was very difficult to pick my head up and look at the full, and look at the full picture, right? The things that I preach now, right? Hey, everyone, look at the big picture and then reverse engineer how that affects your vertical. I was incapable of doing it because I was so econ- I was under I was under so much economic distress at at that point. I wish that we would have had money earlier so that we could have taken advantage of the growth mechanisms that were available to all direct consumer brands in that era. It would have made our lives a lot different. It would have made things a lot more sustainable early on. And I, I wish I would have studied the craft more. I think that, you know, I was so focused on creative marketing and branding and sales that I missed out on the basics and the best practices in e-commerce that would have really done a lot of good for our company. Like what things in particular? Just CRO, SEO, front-end dev, a lot of the things that I'm pretty decent at now, I just didn't have the time to implement or even study at that, at that, at that time in my life. I regret it. I, I would never start another direct-to-consumer brand. I'm very happy to be on the cap table. I think it's going to be, I think if it's not already, I think it's going to be a pretty sizable nine-figure company the type of company that has a pretty strong PE exit just because it's fundamentally sound because of how we built it. Like we built it rather lean versus a lot of our competitors. And I'm excited to see that end. I'm, I'm not depending on it. I've, I've had other, other you know, irons in the fire per se, but I'm excited to see what the company becomes in five or 10 years. Yeah. Was it's a great company. Uh, love the shirts and 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 uh, obviously it was an insane amount of work, but but well done on it. What you know, you talk about direct consumer. You wouldn't build another one of those. You talk about the the way that you kind of did it differently, and a lot of talk right now about are we in this direct consumer bubble? Is it you know are we going to have all these you know these companies blow up? Is and and there have been a lot of companies that have just you know economically do not make sense, you know, spending money to lose money. You, so I guess I'll just leave it at that. Do you think we're in a direct-to-consumer bubble, bubble right now with, with the way that a lot of e-commerce is funded and invested in? No, I think that we're on the precipice of a boom. I think that we've been fighting over a total adjustable market that was minuscule, you know, 11.2% of e-commerce, of, of excuse me, 11.2% of all retail as e-commerce is a relatively small channel given that Amazon owns 40 to 50% of it. And so, you know, as we surpass 30% now and at least temporarily customer acquisition costs have fallen a little bit. You know, I know a lot of companies whether it's our portfolio or the you know the paid marketing agencies that that are in my ecosystem you know, we aggregate a bunch of data just to see how things are performing across the board. And there are a lot of companies that are having Black Friday slash Cyber Monday-like performance right now, just because if they have the supply, the demand is there. And these are even the non-essential companies, right? 
And so I think that as this continues to proliferate a little bit and as it continues to grow, the e-commerce pie that is, it's going to open the door to a lot of direct-to-consumer brands that had a harder time gaining meaningful traction, meaningful traction being the path to eight-figure revenue, the path to you know top 1,000 internet retailer status. That's going to get a little bit easier. And I think that what you're going to see is you know, after a little after after a dip in the short term, I think investors are going to come crawling back to help identify and build the brands that are going to replace the traditional brands. And so, I think it's going to be a good time for direct consumer brands. I know that that's a counterintuitive take, but that that's what I believe. Interesting. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit because there's a couple of things there. One, there's the huge surge you've had right now online. So you mentioned thirty percent. So is that where do you? And when you say thirty percent, I'm guessing you mean. E-commerce now is accounting for 30% of retail. Is that what you meant by that? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Where are you getting that figure from? Bank of America credit card data. Okay. Interesting. So 30%. So, so that obviously is, is, is you know, a huge uh, accelerant. But if you have underlying weak fundamentals from a margin standpoint, from an overhead standpoint, there's just a, it seems like I've seen a good number of companies and that Man, they'll be doing you know millions of dollars in sales. Uh, they're venture backed. They're raising it at you know two or three x revenue, and they they're losing significant amounts of money, you know four or five years in. So I guess that's do you I guess so you've got two forces there. You've got a, a macro force on the top line that's very positive, but fundamentally with a lot of direct to consumer brands, do you see do you feel like what do you think the percentage of them are that are sound financially and have good underlying financial models versus the ones that kind of are almost caught up in that that you know the textile investing where let's just drive revenues and we can figure out profitability later. So I guess that's what I was kind of driving at from the bubble standpoint. Oh, I mean, in, in that context, listen, I'm, I'm not a fan of those types of brands. I, you know, I, I'm a fan of the companies that have founder product fit as much as product market fit. I think that the brands that have raised minimal amounts of money have the best long-term prospects. So with the exception of maybe Away, just because I believe in the ability of Jen Rubio, I, I don't see a lot of the companies that have raised tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars doing much in the direct-to-consumer space. I don't think that they're going to have the types of exits that they envisioned four, five, six, seven years ago. Um, in that case, yeah, there is somewhat of a bubble. I think that, I think that overall, the, the, funding, the, the funding ecosystem of a lot of these brands have masked a lack of marketing and operational and supply chain expertise, right? Because, you know, when you have money, you can hide your weaknesses. I think that that's going to sort of come home to roost. Yeah, I think that's already beginning. But for the companies that have solid fundamentals, solid founder product fit, and of course, product market fit, I think you're seeing some magic happen. I know that there are a ton of companies, a ton, let me refrain from, you know, speaking in like, absolutes. There are quite a few companies that I'm aware of right now of which, you know, I have access to their revenue data, things like that where you would be incredibly impressed by how fast they got to the point where they were making 5 to 7 million dollars a year. Which for me is incredible because first 6 months of Mizen we did $30,000. And so seeing a company make it to 5 to 7 million dollar run rates going into year two is mind numbing, especially when they've only raised three to $5 billion. 
And are these companies that are accelerating this quickly? Are they doing it? It's all paid. They're just lever- They just find a a market, whatever the reason they're able to leverage paid to get scaled up that quickly. Are you, are you finding people that are able to do that more organically, more guerrilla marketing style? Yeah, yeah, exactly. These are the companies that have mastered a more organic form of marketing. They have strong communities that are loyal and passionate about what they're building. They are certainly pursuing some paid marketing spend, but it's secondary or tertiary. They are organic marketing first. Brand marketing, community, content first, you know, mid-funnel paid, retargeting second. Interesting. You may have answered this question already, but I've had this this kind of thesis for, you know, five looking about five to seven years in the future that you have three companies. I've said this before on the podcast, so apologies for people who have heard this, but you have three companies, the big three own 70, 80% of web traffic-ish and they're public companies. They're going to keep squeezing the lemon. Uh, stuff's going to get more expensive. And granted, you're going to have little pockets here and there where you can arbitrage, get decent return on ad spend. But I almost feel like we have, we're starting to come full circle where because there's more competition, because those costs just continue to go up, that you can't arbitrage page traffic. It's just going to get harder and harder to make that work. And so we've almost come full circle to being able to have to be just a great organic marketer, to have a great product, word of mouth. But the other side, flip side of that is I have very little personal experience in paid traffic. Almost all the companies I've built have been on the, the backs of organic and, and non-paid marketing. And so that's the world, the way I see the world. Do you think that's fair and accurate? Or do you think in five to seven years, it's going to be really hard to build brands? And obviously, who knows what's going to happen? Maybe maybe they'll get broken up. But assuming those three companies don't get broken up meaningfully, do you think we're going to live in a world five years from now where it's going to be very difficult to start a new brand with paid on those three platforms? Well, I, I would hope that no one's starting a brand with paid advertising as their approach. But if they are, yeah, absolutely. Listen, with with Pepsi going direct to consumer, what do you think that that means? That means that, you know, they launched snacks.com yesterday and they're going to go full steam into Facebook and, and Instagram spend. Well, as a result, that's, you know, they they're the masters of the trade. They know exactly how much their hundreds of millions of dollars, how far that how far that's going to go in direct to consumer yield. But that's going to raise customer acquisition costs for everyone else, right? And so as more of these traditional companies go direct to consumer, these traditional brands that have been around for 50, 100 years, then yeah, it's going to get even harder to do what you're going to do on Facebook and Google and Instagram and Snapchat and so on and so forth. And so if, if you don't have that alternative view of how you can market and how you can gain early market traction, then I wouldn't even start. Well, let's geek out about communities a little bit here. And for, for the moment, let's put, a, put aside, I run a community, uh, you have a community with 2PM, we'll get to those in just a minute. But I'd love to hear what you're seeing with e-commerce companies leveraging, and you already alluded to that a little bit, leveraging communities to help build their brand at, at our at our ECF Live event this last year, we had a couple of people come in in the in the sports space and also the cannabis space who have meaningfully grown their businesses through just through private communities, and that's been a huge driver for them. What are you seeing? Can you share some examples, or maybe just give your thoughts on how how powerful or how important that's going to be as a, a way to, to to actually build brands going forward? I think it's I think community is everything. I think community is just as important as the threads that your SKUs are manufactured with. It's, 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 it's the moat that separates your company from other companies, right? 
I think a great analog is to look at Nike. And I know people like using Nike as, as an example, so I'm going to be very specific. When, unless, unless you're extremely rare, if you wear a Nike shirt, you're not going to wear Adidas anything, right? Because to you, to you, Nike is, it's a statement. It's not just a, something that you wear. It's, it's, this is the team that I'm on, right? It's, it's why they spend so much money in the NBA in the, in the NFL, because they know that like when that consumer puts on that Jersey or that team shirt, everything else in their body has to also be Nike. More so than any other company, that phenomenon exists. To me, that's not just a, a, a matter of marketing and branding. That's a matter of community. Like you're staking a flag and saying like, this is what I am. I'm a Nike athlete or I was a Nike athlete, right? Or I wish I could have been a Nike athlete. Well, as it relates to directing consumer brands and community, it's the same thing. If you don't have that same mechanism in your own way, shape or form, there's nothing protecting you from, from substitution. So how did, how did Nike do that though? Because I, I know there's people like that. I am a somewhat active guy. I love to get outside. And so not exactly in their demographic, but when you think about Nike versus let's say Reebok, there's effectively, you know, they, they, they both have a lot of, they both have, you know, highly sponsored athletes. They both make active wear a lot of for traditional sports. Uh, what, what is it? What does it differentiate someone who will only wear Nike from someone who only wears Reebok? Like, how did they do that? Like, it's kind of the, the Ford versus Chevy debate. What what were they able to do? And and maybe what are the lessons that we can steal from them, apply to our own businesses? How are they able to do that? Uh, because at a higher level, Reebok versus Nike, they both, to someone who's not in the cult, it seems like they stand for the same thing. Well, <laughs> given I have... <laughs> <laughs> Given I have some experience with this, let me just say this. For the folks that wear exclusively Reebok, I would tend to guess that they're highly paid to do so. You're going to find a lot of people that wear Nike because of what Nike stands for. It's, it's the brand of champions. You know, Nike is the goddess of victory. You know, at the core, like that's what it means. Like you are either competing in something, you're training for something, or you represent something. That's, that's what Nike means by name by by messaging and by the community that they've built around their products the the athletes that you see wearing their products whether it's you know Jordan being a psychopath and driving his teammates crazy or Kobe being a psychopath and driving his teammates crazy you know or or, or, Le, or LeBron James who's only a bit smaller than an offensive lineman or tight end you know carrying himself like a point guard on the basketball court like that Serena Williams I can go on and on and on. Like that's we're talking about community and in, 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 in big business, that's the community. Like that's what you see first. You're standing, you're standing. Imagine those people are on the the perimeter of of you, and you're standing amongst them. Like that's what you see, and that's what you know. Going back to Shoe Dog and Phil Knight, like that's what he envisioned whenever he signed his first athlete. When you look at community, it totally makes sense. It's it's more of a broad sense and inclusion from that point. You and I both have more kind of more discrete communities in terms of actual either forms or or or, or email lists or, or things like that or, or private little areas where, where certain groups of people can talk. From that perspective, do you see something like a very a much more discrete community 
being something that e-commerce communities are going to be able to leverage in the next you know five years to build more brands, or is it more just about being much more intentional about much more intentional about who's who's in, who's out, what they're standing for? Because that what you're talking about is it is community, but to me it also seems as much branding as it is community. So do do you think very discrete communities are going to be able? Do you see many companies out there actually leveraging you know? communities of, of people online or in person to build brands, build brands meaningfully, or is it more about just really good branding that also has a, an element of inclusion in it? I think the answer, the answer is yes. I mean, you have to, I, listen, I don't know what your plans are for e-commerce fuel. World domination. It, it's flat out. Huh, well, I, I, I feel you on that. <laughs> for me, if I ever decided to launch a merchandising operation for 2 p.m., I think I think that it would I think that it would attract a certain individual that is high achieving, that is creative, that is deep thinking, that is representative of big ideas and executing on those ideas. And you know, with with our private community, there are quite a few heavy hitters that I'm always impressed are even in the room. And I would venture to guess that in our industry, if people saw those individuals wearing this hat or this shirt or this sweatshirt or this sticker on their laptop, it would make a strong statement. It would make an, it, no different than, than Serena walking with a Nike headband on down the street with her daughters. Like it, it would make a statement. Like it would be like, oh, this is what 2 p.m. represents. Even a quiet sort of covert community, like that's that same element of community is possible, right? I think that you've accomplished that. I look forward to growing as a part of your community. I think that I think that I'm accomplishing that slowly but surely, and I'm sure that there are others doing the same. Yeah, talk a little bit about 2 p.m. It's it's for those who don't know. It's I hesitate to just say it's not just it, it's front facing an incredibly great newsletter about e-commerce and and branding and retail and technology. I'll let you describe it. Why? How, how would you describe 2 p.m.? Well, I think it's important to go back to what I was saying earlier about a top-down approach to understanding ecosystems and then drilling down on your specialty to understand how that entirety of ecosystem affects your vertical, right? So I believe that deep generalists have the advantage. I believe that anyone can specialize, but the real, honest-to-goodness deep generalist is a, is a rarity. And the people that can, the people that can see the entire ecosystem and understand how things fit together and understand like where the levers are and what influences what, you know, it then benefits you wherever you go within that ecosystem. Obviously, e-commerce is probably one of the, the main focuses of our conversations because that's where a lot of the industry folks are. But, you know, you have mathematicians, you have, you have sociologists, you have consumer psychologists, you have brand managers, you know, all, all of these folks, you have academics and they're all having these conversations. And I try to reach out to them in the, in, with, with, with the content that I curate. But if you're paying, the point is, if you're paying attention to all of that, that it, it paints a different picture for you than if you're focused on your specialty alone, right? If you're just focused on how to eke out another 0.01% on LTV, then you're going to miss the tidal wave of what happens when this particular change in real estate affects e-commerce by this much for this reason. Like 
that person that's so focused on one small component of their vertical is going to miss out on the greater picture and thus potentially miss out on the benefits of understanding what's to come. And so like I pride myself on preparing people for what's to come by, by my curations and by finding the right stories that leave people best informed. These people are able to sort of see the writing on the wall, read the tea leaves, if you will, before anyone else. And like I pride myself on, co- on companies and on people and on executives anticipating what's next based upon what they learn or what they draw from context from 2 p.m. Yeah, and you've got if you've got an incredibly incredibly well done weekly newsletter. You can get it for free at 2pml.com. You also have a paid newsletter, very reasonable price, especially for the value that I highly recommend. I subscribe to it. It's fantastic. The the level of content that you put out is pretty staggering for the quality of it. Are you doing all of this yourself? Because if you are, it would be enough to just drive someone crazy. <laughs> for or do you have a team that's doing this? I, this is a little bit more of a maybe less interesting to people, but just from a deeply selfish curiosity, how are you managing all of this? Well, so this was my first week off in about forty plus weeks. Every week, I'm doing about seventy to eighty hours of work. So, I'll try to answer your question as succinctly as possible because I would actually love to hear you talk about this. I admire your work as well. And I, I, would love to, I would love for the audience that I bring to this to understand what you do. But getting back to your question, it's mostly me. I have a small team that helps me sort of tweak a few things here and there. Hillary Milnes, Andrew Johnson, Vincenzo Landino, you know, Tracy Wallace is helping from time to time. You know, they help me to professionalize my product so that I don't look stupid from, you know, I don't look, I I, I don't want to miss an edit or, you know, Vincenzo's a, a, a great sound editor for my podcast and things like that. But mostly it's, it's, it's my pace, it's my cadence and it's, it's backbreaking. You know, if people, when people don't appreciate it or not appreciate it, but when they don't think that it's enough, it, it hurts. Like I don't think that they realize how hard it is to do what I'm what I'm doing. I think it's natural to think, oh, there's a there's a committee behind it. Therefore, it sort of like lessens the the fruit of it, right? But there isn't. I get a lot of emails saying, "Hey team, like you should do this too." Or I'm like, "Hey man, it's 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 me. Like this is my email address." <laughs> like uh, I'm not, I'm not trying to pretend like we're a team of 10 or 15. Like there's, it's me and four contractors and we, we, we both, you know, we're all founder level types of folks and we all do great work. But, you know, if I don't wake up and do the work, it's not going to get done. And I, I take a lot of pride in that. Man, why? So, I mean, you talked about with Mizzen and Maine how you worked so hard to get that off the ground and in a, in a, a, a much more secure, comfortable place right now. Why, what, what's driving you to work 70 or eight hour, 80 hours per week? Because obviously you do an incredible job, get a ton of value out of that, but you could also probably do, you could either hire other people or you could scale back a little bit. What is it that's driving you to put that much time and effort into this? I think it goes back to the model, right? Like if you look at the about tab at 2pml.com, you're going to see a portfolio of companies. You know, in my experience, I haven't pattern matched as a venture capitalist. You know, I live in the Midwest. I don't appear to be as as cerebral as your traditional associate. But 
at the heart of it, I am. And I decided to put my money where my mouth was. And so it's a vertical commerce model. It sort of feeds a cycle. 2PM makes money in a few ways. We obviously have our memberships. We, we do office hours for founders that want strategic insights. And I love doing that. It's not easy, but I set aside maybe three to six hours a week to work with one or two founders. And then we have high-level consulting. You know, so I've had consulting partners you know, that include Verizon Media, ShipBob, Big Commerce, the Churnin Group, Passport, Alibaba, so on and so forth. So they, you know, at, at, at a certain point, you know, 2PM has been a recurring, a recurring partner to them. And so what that does is that frees up a cash flow that allows me to reinvest in the ecosystem. So if I believe in a concept, it's not just a take to me. It's like, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to invest in that company or a company that represents those principles. And so in the last year and a half, you know, 2PM's made 15 angel investments off of the balance sheet. And, you know, that number is going to continue to grow. And I'm really excited about seeing, you know, how these companies continue to mature. Obviously, the more I do and the faster I work and the more that I yield, the more of those institutional investments I can make on behalf of 2PM. Interesting. Well, if you're if you're not signed up for it, check it out. 2PML.com. Exceptionally well done newsletter in the, the e-commerce tech and retail space. Always, always open those up. So yeah, thanks for all the work on that. I mean, it's a it's a incredible value for for the for what you provide. And yeah, I appreciate you busting your tail over there for for such a great curated, well-written newsletter and also the original pieces you put out. You do a really nice job. Thank you. Great. Well, I gotta wrap this up here. One thing I want to do before we we close though is a quick lightning round. So feel free to just hit me with as as concise of an answer as you'd like if you're up for it. The first question: What's your favorite piece of e-commerce tech? Wow, I'm going to keep it really simple. Anything that's one-click purchasing, whether that's PayPal, ShopPay, Fast, Fast, anything. I, I love that. I think that's going to change the ecosystem. The least favorite piece of e-commerce tech. <laughs> Oh man, that's a that's a tough question. I think legacy systems. Okay, so the the aged out build of Lowe's.com is incredibly frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I believe you're you're a CrossFitter uh, or haven't been in the past. What's your most hated CrossFit exercise? There's a workout called Fran that if you do it right takes under three minutes, and it's a different type of pain that I haven't done in a long time, but I've, I remember it very distinctly. What's the, uh, what's the last thing you apologized for that you're willing to share? I scared my daughter this morning. <laughs> we have this habit. My oldest daughter's 12 and we scare each other all day long. Like we will, <laughs> <laughs> we find ways to like startle each other just throughout the house or whatever. And I got her so good that she got so mad this morning and just started punching me. And I don't know, it was really funny. Uh, what what is it? There's such primal joy in startling someone. I don't know where it comes from or why we're wired like that. But I'm the same way, man. I just there's I get uncommon amounts of pleasure out of uh, scaring it's the crap the out of people. It's the greatest, uh, man. It's it's so good. I did that for my wife one time. She had a surprise birthday party 
she thought one was coming and she came into the house and nobody was there. And so she relaxed and calmed down, but everyone was waiting in her bedroom. So we had a glass of wine. I got her comfortable, relaxed, safe in her own environment. And she walked <laughs> into her bedroom and 30 people blew up and screamed at her. And it was, uh, there's just so much joy out of, out of scaring people. Oh, that's the best. That's great. What's, what's one of your life goals that's a decade plus in the future? Wow. I want to teach. Like I want to, I want to be able to be in a position where I've done, I've done the work. The work has yielded itself, yielded itself. And um, I can, I can give back by like helping people build from scratch and create that type of wealth and opportunity for themselves. And, and finally, what's the number one quality you look for in people you voluntarily spend time with or become friends with? Oh, wow. Intellectual curiosity. I feel like IQ is so overrated and pedigree. <laughs> Pedigree is so overrated, but like if you're curious about things and you want to figure something out, that's a superpower. Yeah, totally agree. Webb, thank you, man. This has been great. I, I had all these other questions on investing I wanted to get to. Don't have time for it, unfortunately. But yeah, I've been wanting to chat with you for a while and it didn't disappoint. So thank you for making the time. Thanks for all the work you're doing over there. And again, if, if you're not, not getting the newsletter, uh, 2pml.com, check it out over there and get started for free and, and get a sampling of the good stuff we've been, we've been talking about. So appreciate all your work, sir. Thank you for making the time to come on. Yeah. Uh, whenever we're done recording, I just have one one more thing to discuss. Oh, perfect. Well, we're going to stop right now and go off the record for all the secret talk. So thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do it for this week. Again, a big thank you to the team at Clavio for making the show possible. The best place to send highly segmented messages by email and SMS to your customers to make more money. You can learn more about them and get started at Clavio.com forward slash ECF. And also brought to you by the e-commerce fuel private community, a vetted form and review directory of a thousand plus in the trenches experienced store owners that you can connect with to help grow your business. If you want to learn more about that and apply for membership, you can do that at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening. Work hard and adventure often and looking forward to seeing you again next Friday. This is the ASY Radio Network Live from New York.